Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right, let's go. Romans chapter 7 is where we left off last week, specifically verse 14, and we're picking back up. If you're visiting with us for the first time, I encourage you to Open your Bibles, as we do every Sunday, to the text. We're just going to work through the second half of Romans chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to use one of the ones that you can find in the rack in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, as we always say, keep that Bible. That's our gift to you. As you're finding Romans chapter 7, let me just give you a little brief little uh, thought that uh, has been stewing in our hearts as pastors. Uh, We are thinking about just briefly and in a small way, but I think an important way, tweaking our worship service order when we gather together. Um, We generally kind of pause as we are worshiping midway through to do a little meet and greet time and send the kids out. And we realize that for different personality types, that's a pretty uncomfortable 45 seconds that seems like two weeks. Uh, And we also think that potentially... I think even on a deeper level, rather than just serving different personality types that are uncomfortable then, I think think unwittingly we may be orienting ourselves away from a Godward trajectory that we want to to maintain throughout our our worship gathering. Certainly we want to notice one another and care for one another, but I think before and after service is a good time for that. So we're thinking about doing away with that. Um, All the introverts said, praise God. Uh, but let me just also admonish us that, that when we gather together, this is, this is the time when God's people come together to worship God. This is important. It really is. In the American church, it seems like personal piety and devotion to the Lord has eclipsed corporate life. And I think that's an error. I think they go together, and I think our gathering together is central. I, I, think, I think a healthy Christian is somebody who, who looks forward to the beginning of the week and gathering with God's people to lift our eyes to the hills to see where our help comes from, the Lord on high. I think it involves getting here a little early and leaving a little late and going to sleep on time and stirring your affections for Jesus when we gather together. So, so let's, let's, let's to that end maybe tweak it a little bit and do it a little bit better in the weeks to come. Amen? All right. Well, let me read Romans chapter 7, verses starting in verse 14 through 25. We're going to be in this second half of Romans 7 for the next few weeks. It is one of the most hotly debated portions of the whole letter of Romans, maybe even the whole New Testament. Many of you are familiar with the debate of Romans chapter 7, specifically the second half, and we're going to get into it. If you're with us for the first time, uh, you may, may take you a while to catch up, but you'll get the gist of it. We've been working through, this is what we do on Sundays, we just work through books of the Bible primarily. We find ourselves here in the second half of Romans 7, this beautiful letter where the Apostle Paul is writing about the glory of the saving grace in Jesus. Essentially in Romans he's saying that nobody can be saved by their own works, it's only by Christ. And Christ and his life and death and resurrection is the hope of all mankind. In Romans 7 he's making the argument 
that the Old Testament law was never meant to save us. It was really meant to prepare us for Jesus. It was meant to point us to Jesus. It was meant to point us to our futility that we can't save ourselves, but that we can only be saved by faith in Christ, which is grace. So let me read, starting in verse 14 through 25. Friends, this is such an important text for the Christian life. Oh, we live in an age of distraction. It would be, it would be a shame. Look, I'm, not, I'm not the greatest preacher in the world, but it would be a shame if you were distracted by Instagram right now. Read with me. Let me read out loud. You read along silently. Let's stare at this text and then let's work our way through it, okay? Verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual. But I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want. But I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So, verse 21, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members." Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. All right, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, Jesus said in John 6 that it is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. And so I pray the Son's words back to you. Lord, we need the Spirit to give life and illumination. The flesh is of no help at all. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So my plan this morning is to give us a kind of overview of this text and to orient us to the the theological debate, for lack of a better term, that has been going on literally for centuries about this text. This text is undoubtedly one of the more well-known passages in all of Romans, maybe in the whole New Testament, maybe the whole Bible. 
The debate is, and this is the Apostle Paul writing, obviously, the debate is, who is this man that he's referring to? In verses 14 through 25, over 40 times he uses the, the pronoun I, or the possessive pronoun my or me, over 40 times. Who is this wretched man in verse 24 that Paul is speaking of? Is it, and here's the debate, is Paul referring to himself autobiographically, clearly, is he referring to pre-converted Paul or post-converted Paul? In other words, is the I that Paul is referring to of himself saved or not saved, believer or unbeliever? Christians have disagreed on this interpretation for centuries. And let me emphasize this, and I cannot emphasize it strongly enough. Faithful Christians, faithful believers, faithful, brilliant, historic scholars through the centuries have differed on this. This is not where you stand on this issue. And I I will come down very humbly on one side in just a moment. Where you stand on this issue is not a test of faithfulness or orthodoxy. It, it doesn't really even put you in one theological camp, honestly. People within different theological camps disagree. I find myself, I don't know if you guys knew this or not, but I find myself in the Reformed camp, and even people within the Reformed view, and that comes from a history of the Protestant Reformation where the church was, that's where we get this word reformed, they were reformed, the church through the influence of Martin Luther and the other reformers, the church was reformed around the word of God rather than the ecclesiastical authority, the false ecclesiastical authority of the Pope and the tradition of the church. The church was reformed on the gospel and the word of God, and from that flowed several theological convictions that I think are true about the utter sovereignty of God and how we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, and the scriptures alone are our final full authority for life and practice. Yeah, that was worth an amen. But even within that theological stream, there's disagreement on what Romans 7 is referring to, Christian or non-Christian. The danger is not so much in who we identify the I to be, whether pre-converted or post-converted Paul. I think the real danger is, is that we are prone And we need to be careful not to do this, and we'll we'll hopefully guard against this in the coming weeks. We need to be prone to draw the wrong conclusions from whatever position we may take. And we'll get into that in just a moment, but I begin with all of these introductory comments, not to make us anxious about this text, but just to make us, hopefully, to work in us a little bit of humility, okay? Let's approach this with humility. I mean, great minds have disagreed on this, and so let's, let's, let's be gracious towards one another. Ironically, I think the point of the passage is not so much us to wonder who the I is, whether it's pre- or post-converted Paul. I think if Paul could come into our gathering, if he could be transported down from heaven and hear the theological debate that has happened for, for centuries after his death, he would be a bit perplexed. I don't think that Paul was really wanting us to think about this, and I, ultimately, I don't think this is the point of the text. Essentially, I don't think this is what the Holy Spirit, as he inspired Paul to write this, is saying. I think the point of Romans chapter 7, the second half of it, is the continuation of the whole point of the whole chapter, and it is this, that the law is not our problem. Our problem is sin. 
and that the law, as good as it is, and as, as holy as its purposes were in the Old Testament, which was to show us Christ, which was to show us the character of God, but ultimately to show us what is needed, not our own obedience, but our trust in Jesus, whereby when we trust in him, then we can follow God. The ultimate point of this chapter is to show the futility of the human condition and the, the futility of the law to save, which is to push us to Christ. But... I don't think I'd be a good pastor if I didn't talk to you about this debate. So let's, let's get into it, okay? All right. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you arguments for both sides. And today's going to be a kind of 30,000-foot overview. And then next week, we're going to dig down in there, and we're going to kind of go through this sort of verse by verse. So let's look first at the arguments that Romans 7 describes an unregenerate person. And this word unregenerate means a non Christian, somebody who's not yet a believer. And I chose that word specifically, unregenerate, because it's a good word for us. We say it now and again, and I want to explain it. The word unregenerate is a good biblical word for us to know and to think about, because I think even the definition of the word helps us to understand salvation biblically. This word to regenerate means to be made new. And we see in Titus chapter 3, salvation is described as the, that we are saved not by our works of righteousness, but by the washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit. The point being that when you define salvation by the biblical term regeneration, you are already orienting yourself to the fact that that's how people are saved, not by mere self-improvement, but by rebirth. That's what regeneration means. It means that you must be born again. That's the definition of a believer, not somebody that has decided to improve themselves or who has added a Western religious ethic to their life to improve, but to be born again, to be made new, to go from death to life. That's what a Christian is. And so the arguments that Romans 7 describes an unregenerate, an unborn again, an unsaved person is this. First, that the language that's used in verses 14 through 25 seems to describe total defeat. And commentators have pointed specifically to verse 14. Look at verse 14, the first verse that we read. It says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. And, and people have struggled for years that Romans 7 comes right after Romans 6, which that was an interesting, that, that, that makes sense, right? We've all kind of got the number line figured out. Romans 7 comes right after Romans 6, but what's interesting about Romans 6 is Romans 6 is all about how we have been freed from the captivity of sin, the reign of sin. Romans 6 says that sin will have no dominion over you. That's what it means to be a Christian. You may struggle with it, but it is no longer your master. Then, if Paul is a Christian, the argument goes in this text autobiographically, how can he say that we're still sold under sin when the chapter before he said that we're, we're free from sin's tyranny even though we may struggle with it? So that, as the argument goes, and I, I actually think that that's the strongest argument for this view. And there's a few other verses that would point us in that. I mean, the whole text, just the tenor of it, would point us in that direction. But it look, looked like at verse 18 where he says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. The inability of a person to obey is a description, I think, of an unbeliever. 
The point about being regenerated is that we were dead in our sins, unable to, write, to obey God in any way. And now the description of a believer is that their heart has been made new. And now you are enabled with a new heart comes new desires, new abilities, not perfectly to obey God. But that new heart enables you now to obey God in ever increasing measure. That's called sanctification. But this text here, Paul is saying in verse 18 that I don't even have the ability to carry it out. And so that has pointed people along the lines of saying, well, that just this language just is describing total defeat, which is not descriptive of a Christian, as the argument goes. The second argument, and there are many more than the ones I'm going to present, but these are just the ones that I thought were, were most helpful for us to, to, to orient us to this text. The second argument would be the structure of the text in general. So if, if we just kind of look back up a few verses in Romans chapter 7, look again at verse 5, and, 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 and commentators have noted this for centuries, that, that verses 5 and 6, they believe, kind of set up the rest of chapter 7 and, verse, and, and chapter 8. So in, in verses 5 and 6 of Romans 7, 7, let me read it. Paul says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So clearly there, he's saying that he's describing an unbeliever. There's no doubt about that in verse 5, because he says, while we were living in the flesh, right? And then in verse 6, he says, but now... We are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And so here's what, here's what people through the centuries have, have noticed about the structure of Romans 7 and 8. They say, verse 5 is a description of people that are still not yet born again, living in the flesh, producing dead fruit. And over here in verse 6, but now... We have been released from the captivity of the law and we are enabled, we're born again, we're regenerate and able now to serve in the new way of the spirit. So verse five is an unregenerate unbeliever. Verse six is describing a regenerate believer. And what they have seen through the centuries is then that verses seven through 25 of Romans seven kind of build out, color in the lines of what this life looks like. Whereas in chapter 8, verses 1 through 17, which we're going to get to in a while, build out what the Spirit-led life looks like that is mentioned in Romans chapter 7, verse 6. Do you see that? So 5 and 6 kind of become the two tracks of the human life, and people have seen that structure. Uh, it's a good argument. And then another thing that's just notable about verses 14 through 25 is that there is no mention of the Holy Spirit at all. None. There's no mention of, of, of the Holy Spirit dwelling in this eye. In fact, not only is the Holy Spirit not mentioned, but there's just a whole lot of I, a whole lot of flesh. Paul uses, again, the I, me, or my over 40 times in just those few verses. This verse, this passage is absorbed with self. And that has pointed people through the centuries to say, this is, this is describing an unregenerate, unbelieving person. So those are just some of, the, I think, the, the, the more convincing arguments for, for that point of view. The other argument is that this is describing a regenerate person, a believer, albeit somebody who is in the throes of sanctification and struggle with sin. There are many variations here. Is this, is this describing a, a brand new believer? 
Is this describing somebody who's in the process of coming into salvation? They're kind of in an in-between state of hearing the gospel and being brought into. That's what Martin Lloyd-Jones' view was as he preached like 23 sermons on this text. And I listened to most of them and came away helped and kind of confused. Thank you, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. There's lots of variations of this view, but, but let's look now at four arguments for that this text describes a born-again person who is in the throes of the fight against sin. In other words, they've been made new, and they're still battling with sin. Argument number one is that the shift is just a, a textual argument about just the tenses of the language. And it's just that there's a shift to the present tense in verses 14 through 25. So what we looked at last week, verses 7 through 13, Paul is clearly speaking autobiographically. He's speaking about I, but the I in verses 7 through 13 are past tense. He's, he's talking about what it was, it, how it used to be, but in verse 14 he shifts to the present tense, which leads people to believe that Paul is speaking about his present reality, or at least his present reality since he has been a Christian. A good argument. It's not necessarily decisive because we have examples in the scriptures where people and Bible writers will refer to themselves in the first tense to make a point, just to emphasize it. Not decisive, but it is a good point. The second argument that is one of the main arguments, and I think this is, this, is, this is really a strong argument, is remember how we said verse 14 says that you're sold under sin. How can, an unbelie- how can a believer be sold under sin? Well, on the other side of the aisle, look at verse 22. It says, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. So conversely, just like people would say, well, how can a believer say that you're sold into sin? We could also, on the other side of the aisle, say, well, how can an unbeliever delight in God's law in his inner being? This isn't just a kind of attraction to a new way of life, but there's this inner being where whoever this I is, pre or post conversion, is delighting in the law of God. And that has led people through the centuries to say that only a true Christian, only somebody whose heart has been made new, albeit still weak, even in its infancy, Only a person with a new heart can actually delight in God's law. And friends, I think that's a good argument. Know this, that that the flesh avails nothing. In order for our desires to be made new, we can't grit our teeth, we can't change ourselves. We need a heart transplant. That's what salvation is. In fact, that's what I think Ezekiel 36 is referring to when through the prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 36, he is giving him a picture of what salvation will look like in the new covenant. And he says, this new covenant will come and I will take out your heart of stone and I will put in a heart of flesh. Friends, I think that's an Old Testament allusion to how salvation works in the new. God will not encourage you to do better, but he will do what you cannot do. He will take out your dead heart with its old desires, and he will give you a new, de- new heart with new desires. And that has led people to say, well, this is only a Christian can be described in that, that way. I think that's a good argument. Argument number three, and this is just a general tenor of this, this argument, along with what Paul says in other parts of the Bible, taking it all together, realizing that Romans 7, verses 14 through 25, is not all that Paul says about the Christian life or about our struggle with sin. Taking it all together, argument number three is that Paul is referring to a time of struggle, albeit an intense struggle with sin, but not a time of total defeat. 
And again, I think, I think this argument has a lot of merit. So, for example, just look at how Paul refers to uh, sanctification in the Christian life in Galatians chapter 5. I think we'll have it on the screen. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. He says, But I say, walk in the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So what's going on in Galatians chapter 5 is Paul is speaking to Christians in in a pastoral encouragement. And of course he's speaking to Christians in Romans chapter 7 too. But in Romans chapter 7 he's really giving more of a theological treatise on the Christian life. In Galatians chapter 5 he's giving them a pastoral encouragement. So I think we can say that the context of Romans chapter 5 is he's speaking to Christians about the Christian life. And this is what he says about the Christian life to Christians that he is exhorting. He says, I say, verse 16, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Implicit there is that we still have desires of the flesh that war against us. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. Oh, that's what the next verse says. I shouldn't have even tried to comment on it. I should have just kept reading. And the desires of the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Doesn't that sound in a kind of a in kind of a cliff notes version? Doesn't that sound in an abridged way, a lot like what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 7. And there's really no debate that in Galatians chapter 5, he's talking to Christians. And, and then when, let me just, just one more. Go to Colossians chapter 3, or we'll have it on the screen. Actually, keep your thumb in Romans 7, unless you're just really good at flipping through your Bible. Colossians chapter 1. Listen to how he describes the Christian life and how he exhorts the Colossians. In Colossians 3 verse 1, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When, you, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We just sang a song about heaven. Did you catch that line? I can't even remember what it was, but I just remember just... Just leaning forward to that day when it will all be just like it should be. Praise God. Verse 5, listen to what he says. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality. He's speaking to Christians here. Because this is who you are, because this is where you've been seated because of the gospel, because this is where you are positionally in Christ, practically work out your salvation in this way. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On the account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk for your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Do you see there the tension that Paul is referring to? You've already put it off, but you've still got to fight it. We don't believe in sinless perfectionism. Or the possibility of it. John Wesley, who was a wonderfully used by God pastor and theologian in American history, really founded the Methodist denomination. I I, I love John Wesley. I I disagree with him on some really important doctrines. But he was used by God in in wonderful ways. One of the things that John Wesley uh, taught was the possibility of a kind of perfectionism, a state of sort of sinlessness for the Christian. And I just think that's wrong. 
All due respect to John Wesley and his brother Charles, who wrote some really good hymns, by the way. Verse 11, here there is neither Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So Christ is in you and he's working in you his good will and pleasure for you to become who you already are. So, so let's not get lost here. Let's remember where we are. The point is, is that these verses in Galatians 5 and Colossians 3 seem to allude to a very similar struggle that's going on in Romans chapter 7, which has caused people through the centuries to lean towards the fact that Paul here, albeit that the believer is in an intense fight and war against sin, that what Paul is referring to here in Romans 7 is the struggle of a believer. Do you catch that? Do you follow that logic? And then finally, the fourth uh, d- argument that Romans 7 describes a regenerate person is, and, and I, I actually think this is the most decisive, and I haven't told you where I stand, and this is the one that very humbly pushes me towards this view. This, this is most decisive towards, for me, and it's the argument about Paul's logic at the end of this chapter in verses 24 and verse 25. So we'll put it up on the screen. That after the victory of verse 25, there's more struggle. Did you catch that when we read it the first time? Let me read verses 24 and 25 again of Romans chapter 7. He says, okay, so, so let's just think about the, the, let's think about the flow here of the logic of Romans 7 verses 14 and following. In verses 14 through like verse 23, it's tough. It's a fight, right? And so... If Paul is referring to his pre-converted state, let's just assume for a second that Paul is referring to his pre-converted state in verses 14 through 23. And then we get to verse 24, and we see he, he just cries out in desperation, and who among us has not been here? Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? In other words, my sin is too powerful, the law is good and holy, but it's insufficient to save What am I going to do? The answer comes in verse 25. It's the gospel. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, right? I mean, praise God. That's the good news. Romans 7 doesn't end on verse 23. It ends with, with, with the victory of Christ. But if prior to that is an unbeliever, and then verse 24 is when salvation comes, you would expect then for the first half of verse 25 to kind of be the end of stuff and then for you to move in to the spirit-led life of Romans chapter 8. But look what he says unexpectedly at the end of verse 25 after the victory of the gospel. What does he say? He says, let me read verse 25 again. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You might expect him to say something triumphant at that point like, yeah, Now let's get into Romans 8. There is, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's just start shadow boxing together. But what does he say after the victory of verse 25, the first half? He says, so then, therefore, conjunction, junction, what's your function? I myself myself serve the law of God with my mind. But my flesh, with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. So do you see what's happening here logically in the mind of Paul as he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? After the victory of 25A comes more struggle in 25B. Do you see that? 
Give me a north-south. Come on. It's a two-way street here. I think that's decisive. That, that's, that's what humbly... I think the arguments for it being an unbeliever are really strong. But I, I think this tips me over just, just a tad to that, to that point of view. Let me end with four pastoral thoughts. Number one, this passage is complicated because sin is complicated. That's what Martin Lloyd-Jones said in one of his 20-something sermons on this passage. And Martin Lloyd-Jones, we call him Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, because not because he was a theological doctor, although he was a brilliant mind, but because he was a a medical doctor before he became a pastor. And as a young man, he was one of the most brilliant physicians in London at the time and was on track to be the personal physician of the King of England and the Prime Minister. But God called him into ministry and he began one of the most fruitful ministries that we've ever seen. But God used his analytical mind, his medical, scientific, analytical mind, through the 50 years of his pastoral ministry to be a a kind of precise analyzer of the text. And as you listen to Lloyd-Jones and as you read him on Romans chapter 7, at times he gets wrapped around the axle and he, it's almost like he loses his way in the forest and then he'll poke his head above the tree line and he'll say, friends, this is hard. We need the Holy Spirit to understand this text because he's trying to examine it in the most, 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 most reverent way possible. And, and at various points he lifts his head above the clouds and he says, this is hard and it's hard because sin is hard. <laughs> sin is hard. It, it clouds us. It makes us angry and it, it makes us judgmental about one another. It makes us cranky and it makes us pessimistic. And it, it makes otherwise sound-minded, able people do dumb things. And it, it levels the playing field. It makes everybody needy at the foot of the cross. Nothing in my hands I bring, we just say, but simply to thy cross I cling. That's everybody in here. The simplest and the most, the most gifted person in this room naturally. All of us are nothing in the face of sin, which is far more powerful than any of us are. I don't care how good your upbringing was. I don't care how, how rich your advantages were. We have no hope in and of ourselves before a much more powerful foe, which is sin. That's the testimony of the scripture. That's what faithful Christians have been believing because that's what the Bible says for centuries. And we live in an age of moral therapeutic deism where we just want to tell one another that we're good and we're okay. Friends, that's not the gospel. It's Americans' false religion. We can't understand Romans. We certainly can't understand Romans chapter 7 if all we want out of Jesus is a pep talk. (laughs) 
Oz. Man, our only hope to be saved from sin is Jesus. Two, my second pastoral thought, is that both views have pitfalls to avoid. If you hold that this passage is talking about Christians who are in the clutches of the battle of sanctification and their fight against sin, which I, I humbly hold to and I reserve the right to change my mind because one of my favorite commentators and current theologians, a man named Tom Schreiner, who is a wonderful New Testament scholar at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, wrote a commentary about 15 years ago on Romans, and then he just updated it because he changed his mind on Romans chapter 7. Thanks, Tom. But I reserve. But my point is, is that if you hold that this is a Christian, we need to be careful that we don't use this as a kind of license for sin. It's like the, it's like the college-age guy's accountability group gone bad. You know what I'm saying? Hey, man, how was your week? Oh, dude, I got slammed again on Friday night. It was, yeah, me too. All right, well, let's pray that God would give us grace. And when they meet again next, next Saturday, how was your week? Oh, man. I just really feel again. Oh, me too. Oh, okay, well, this, I mean, you know, it's just, it kind of almost becomes a kind, of, a kind of strange, poisonous comfort if we use that way, use it that way. Do you see that? And we need to be careful that we don't use the Bible in that way. That's a wicked way to use Romans 7. And the enemy will deceive us, and he will make us comfortable in our lack of godliness. And that's, it, don't you see there's a balance there? Like church life should be this kind of gracious tension where we're like putting gracious pressure on each other and we don't want to ever be like legalists, but we don't want to be antinomians and cheap grace people. Isn't that a tension of the Christian life? Isn't that a hard balance to strike? It is, it is, it is. Now, the other, the other pitfall is if you take this to mean that it's an unregenerate person, an unbeliever, this can be a great discouragement to a believer struggling with sin. Because doesn't Romans, I mean, when I re was reading Romans 7, some of you, just as I was reading the text, were saying, amen, that's me, right? And if, if, if we're not careful... If that's our view, it, and, and that's, a, that's a legitimate biblical view, it can be a great discouragement for people. So do you see the pitfalls? One is cheap grace, one side of the ditch. The other side of the ditch is legalism. And that's not what Romans 7 is, is intended to produce in us, to have a stance on this, to just kind of look at God's word as if it's a science experiment that we can draw out on the board and then move away onto other little things that we need to think about. For instance, it's not an academic exercise. This is information for the sake of transformation. That's what the Bible does to us. So wherever you stand on that, I think that the, the Christian life, that regardless of where you stand, we can all agree that there's this tension in the Christian life. And that leads me to my next and my third pastoral thought, is that we all agree that Christians still struggle with sin, don't we? 
I mean, anybody, if, if that's not something you agree with, then please, please, let's talk after the service. And, um, well, let me put it to you this way. I think I'm a Christian, and all you need to do is follow me around for the week. Amen? Amen. James 3, 2 says that we all stumble in many ways. We all stumble in many ways. And what should that produce in our church culture? It should produce a kind of grace, right? Richard Sibbs, one of my favorite Puritans, wrote this in the 1600s. He wrote a book called The Bruised Reed, and he said, I've read this many times here, it's so beautiful. He says that the Holy Ghost is content to dwell in smoky, offensive souls. <laughs> that's, that's, by the way, that's you and me, right? Smoky, offensive souls. Oh, that the Spirit would breathe into our hearts the same merciful disposition. We must supply out of our love and mercy that which we see wanting in them. The Church of Christ is a common hospital wherein all are in some measure, measure sick of some spiritual disease or other, so we all have occasion to exercise this spirit of wisdom and meekness, and this meekness and wisdom is not exercised in a way that we are okay with one another like that, like that Saturday morning guys group that goes bad, but we're, we're putting this kind of gentle pressure on one another because we need each other to help one another fight against sin because whatever you believe about this passage, all of us can agree that sin is wicked and still rears its ugly head in our lives. Which leads me to the final thought, and it's this, that wherever you stand, whoever you are, let's take it out of the, 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 the theoretical categorization of this text, let's take it to whoever you are, this text speaks to both unbeliever and believer. If you are a believer, see, none of us can write ourselves out of this text, None of us can. If you are a believer today, you should be chastened. You should be sober-minded about the power of sin. You should realize afresh that it is only by the grace of God and the gospel and the spirit who gives life that you are made right with God. And it is only by his work in you that you can even obey him. You should be chastened and you should be encouraged and you should be deepened in your dependence on God as you read this text. That's what it should produce in us. Humility for one another and a sober-mindedness about the spiritual life. If you're not a believer yet and you are consciously aware of that, I'm so glad that you're here. We'll mention that book that we give away. Go see Will at the end of service. We're glad that you're here. Maybe you're consciously aware that you're an unbeliever or maybe you, you think that you're a believer. Maybe you are a goat that thinks you're a sheep. And there's a lot of those here in the deep south. People that think that they're right with God because they have some kind of fringe connection to their church because their grandpa was a deacon or their grandma gets a bulletin from such and such church. And maybe you went to a VBS once and you just think that you're right with God because you're a child of the Bible Belt. Friends, nothing could be further from the truth. And I pray today, not because I'm trying to make you uncomfortable, or actually I am, not because I don't like you, but because I love you. I'm praying today that one of the things that God would do in this text is to slay you so that you would 
finally look away from yourself and look to Christ because only Christ can save you. Sin is far more powerful than we can imagine and Christ is far more merciful than we can ever dream. Sib says this in, in, in his book, Bruised Reed, he says, he says something along those lines that, that the sin in me is so great, but the, the mercy of Christ is greater still. And that's true. That's true for you if you will turn from yourself and trust in Jesus. Because this law that is good, that could not save, Jesus fully obeyed for you if you will turn and trust in him. And the dreadful power of sin, you can be free from in Christ if you will turn away from trusting in yourself and put your hope. It doesn't mean that you understand all that there is to understand about the Christian life. None of us do. But it means that you look away from trusting in yourself and you put your hope in Jesus and you say, Lord, I believe in what Jesus has done for me on the cross. He alone is my hope. He alone can free me from the clutches of this enemy that I cannot defeat on my own. And he alone can lead me into everlasting life where true joy, this isn't entrance into a begrudging religious existence. He alone can lead me into paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Where obedience is sweeter than sin in its counterfeit joy. Let's pray. Father, I pray that Romans chapter 7, specifically the second half, would be like ammonia underneath our sleepy, nostrils, that it would awaken unbelievers out of their self-trust, and that it would rattle and rouse sleepy believers like myself from our slumber and our monotony. And we would be able to say, along with Paul, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Do that, I pray, as we sing to you now and respond to you in worship. In Jesus' name, amen.